In the name of God, the one, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, I begin with the traditional Muslim prayer for the opening of all things, a prayer that precisely emanates from the silent one and returns unto him. Uh, apparently, we're going to each speak about 40 minutes, after which we'll have a discourse with each other, and then there'll be questions and answers also from the audience. The few words that I shall say are based on the Islamic perspective, and within Islamic perspective, on Sufism. Uh, they're not personal ruminations. They're based on a long tradition of understanding uh, the relation between silence and compassion, which is based on the analysis of the levels of the self, of who we are, and where we come from, and where we're going. I want to first of all make clear, there are some things I have to make clear. There's been too much discussion in many circles in the West about, let's say, Christianity and Sufism, Buddhism and Sufism, and so forth. This is not correct. Buddh uh, uh, Sufism is, a, is an aspect of Islam. It's like saying a, a comparison between Islam and uh, Trappist monks. Uh, Trappist monks are part of Catholicism, Catholicism is part of Christianity. and. Uh, Sufism is the inner spiritual contemplative dimension of the Islamic religion. And the same for the Vedanta. As uh, everybody loves the Vedanta, nobody loves to study the laws of Manu, but Vedanta is part of Hinduism. And to do it justice, one has to understand in the context of the great tradition that Hinduism is. But that's not my responsibility to discuss. The other one is. As far as these two perspectives are concerned, which is the subject of this uh, afternoon session, that is, Sufism and the Vedanta. Each represents the interior esoteric dimension of the two great religions that met side by side in the subcontinent of India from the 7th, 8th Christian century onward. That is, Hinduism and Islam. And uh, through the centuries that followed, with a remarkable reciprocity of uh, presence of discourse, of exchange between the highest representatives of the two traditions. No one has as yet written fully about the interaction between uh, the Vedanta and Sufism over the centuries. But just to give you one small example, uh, the West would not have known about the Vedanta and the Upanishads had it not been for the translation of the Upanishads by a Sufi who was also a prince, Dara Shuku, into Persian. It was this translation I was later translated into Latin by Anquetu du Perron and presented to Napoleon in 1804 and found its way to Europe and started all the interest in Hinduism. Uh, very, very few people know that. There's a, remark, there's a remarkable chapter of the spiritual history of humanity, the exchange between uh, Sufism and uh, the Vedanta. Of course, that's not going to be the subject for my brief discourse. It's a long, long story, but I thought you should at least know about it. For centuries, great sages have sat from different two, the two traditions and carried that discourse together. But since the subject of this conference was uh, silence, I'm forced to tell you a personal account. I hardly ever do so when I give a lecture, but I shall do so now. In 1973, I went to Madras where the International Congress of Philosophy was being held in India. I was to give a major philosophical address, but I knew that the greatest living authority of the Vedanta 
the Shankaracharya of Kanchipura, the old Shankaracharya, uh, was living in Kanchi near uh, Madras. So I asked Professor Mahadevan, the great uh, Indian philosopher who was a disciple, to arrange for me to see him. And he, uh, he accepted. He arranged for me to go and see him. And I, I went to a garden about 50, 60 kilometers away from Madras. And uh, I was wearing complete traditional Islamic dress. And they put me in this beautiful garden on a Persian carpet. And I sat cross-legged waiting for some time. And after a while, the Shankaracharya came in with a staff in his hand of a sannyasin, which was never was put on the ground, with two eyes that were more brilliant than the sun. And of course, I being a Malekha, not being a Hindu, he could not come close to me. And I respect that, of course, very much. I'm a traditional Orthodox person, and I'm not a 19th century modernist in, in, in any form whatsoever. Uh, I respected that very much. I was not offended. I was very happy. But he came as close as he could. And he sat down like the Hindu said, do without his back touching the ground, but just sitting on the ground, which most Westerners could not do for more than 30 seconds without falling down the ground or hurting their knees. Don't try it. But they can sit for hours doing this. He sat like this, and a man came from him and he said, His, uh, Shankara is observing the fast of silence. He will only speak to you in silence. So for about eight minutes, eight minutes, he and I just looked into each other's eyes. I've had many, many uh, religious discourses with the popes and bishops and rabbis and uh, great Buddhist Zen masters, you, you name it. Uh, 50 years I've been doing this. This was perhaps the most profound religious discourse I've, I've ever experienced. After the eight minutes were over, he made some sign language to the person and the person came to me and he said, the Shankara is so happy that the deepest truths of the Vedanta are confirmed by the deepest truth of Sufism. And that, that is what silence really means. But on that level to practice silence is not an easy thing. And uh, if I can maybe a little bit critical of ourselves, I must mention that to talk about silence in relation to spirituality, because we must not only think about sound, you must think of the clutter that goes on inside us, both the power of the mind, that is concepts that come one after another, and the power of images in our imaginal faculty. There are two different noise systems within us. One is images that come and go, and one is thoughts that come and go. And we have no control over them. And you have to be a great saint to be able to quiet them down. All of the techniques and methods of all religions have for the ultimate end, I mean spiritual techniques, to bring about this inner silence. Silence doesn't only mean not speaking out. That's only a small part of it. It's this inner silence which is so difficult to attain. Now, this is the supreme goal of both Sufism and the Vedanta, obviously. If there's to be a comparison between the two, and I'm not going to make more comparative statements except this, uh, Usually, of course, in the Vedanta, other people speak about Brahman, uh, the supreme metaphysics is based on the pure subject, Atman, the pure self. So the absolute reality is envisioned in terms of the pure subject. And in most Sufism, absolute reality is envisaged as the pure object. Now, the pure subject is ultimately nothing other than the pure object. The purely transcendent and the purely imminent are metaphysically the same. Perhaps no other 
modern writer has made that as clear as the late Friedrich Schuon, who's buried a few miles from here, who wrote one of the most incredible essays ever written in the European languages on the relationship between Vedanta and Suvisa, where he brings this issue out. So there's not a difference of two different metaphysics, different formulation of the same reality. That is, either we are attached to the ultimately that which is beyond ourselves, or that which is ultimately ourselves in the deepest sense. But both imply a beyondness. Both imply a beyondness. And in order to come to that and understand that, we must understand the structure of the soul. My dear friend, Gray Henry, who's done so much for this city and for this conference, and she's my sister and the only person who can order me around in the world, uh, and no, no other person, uh, I'm here because of her. Uh, she asked me to speak about this question of the self. And so I thought I would dovetail uh, my analysis of the relationship between silence and compassion to this question of the self. Because that is the key. That is the key to realize beyondness, if I can use such a term in English, either of being completely beyond as other or completely beyond as same and self and inward. We have to understand what we have to go beyond. Why would we have to go beyond? What is it that we have to go beyond? Now, we begin, all of us, all of us human beings who have been given consciousness, we begin with uh, the self as uh, inner reality, experiential reality, the most direct. Uh, we are, identify ourselves with this particular bundle or sphere of impressions, thoughts, and so forth, which is myself. And unfortunately, in this stage of what the Hindus would call the Kali Yuga, in this stage of the dark period of history, especially, we're almost born with complete imprisonment in this uh, state of selfishness, in the negative sense, not in the sense of Atman, but uh, the small self. And most of us live through a life like that. But because metaphysically speaking, the self is not a totally independent being, there's always a crack in its wall somewhere. There's always something beyond it. That's why selfishness does not bring happiness, ultimately. Because it is not ontologically independent, metaphysically speaking. It's not a being completely independent unto itself. No self can be happy by simply being itself no matter how it tries to satisfy its appetites, which never end, which is another sign of the fact that it has in it an echo of the infinite. The fact that we as human beings are never happy with simply having more and more quantitatively, in contrast to a horse who eats its food and once it eats its food, is happy. We, our, our appetites are not satiated because something of the infinite is reflected in ourselves, small self. Something of Atman is reflected in that self. So this self is there, and even for ordinary people, uh, we realize that sometimes when, uh, let's say, if we have gained a few pounds, you say, oh, I have to discipline myself. Who is being disciplined and who is disciplining? So we already realize the famous saying of St. Thomas Aquinas, duo sunt and omine, in Latin, there are two within us. There's not only one self, there's more than one self. And Sufism begins right here, right here by pointing out that, in fact, we have many selves, 
nafs in Arabic. Nafs has many different meanings, but one of them is this uh, self, ego. And they're like uh, sheaths. Uh, they're like spheres, concentric spheres, one inside the other. We begin with the nafs, with the self, with the ego, that in classical Arabic is called al-marab that is, which commands us to evil. And what is evil but the privation of good, of the limited in place of the unlimited, and that's where the wrong choices come from, and therefore it is the ego which turns us away from the divine reality. It, uh, the divine reality is there. It's the dark glass that prevents the sun from shining within our being. But there's, as I said, the first stage of perfection is the realization that this is not really us. So the first stage is a higher attainment of the self, which is called al-nafsul lawama in Arabic, which means the blaming soul, the soul that is able to blame itself. As soon as you say, I blame myself for having said this unkind word to my friend, that I in that sentence is not the same I that was blaming the friend, saying the unkind words. It's an, it's an, a higher I within us that is able to blame itself. That's the first stage of spiritual perfection of going beyond the limitations of the human substance, the human ego, the human state is the realization of, uh, being able to blame ourselves, to see our own faults. And once we do that, gradually we try to overcome these faults. Now how this happens, I am not going to go into the question that is not simply a, a rationalistic ethics that we read a book of ethics and correct ourselves. The soul cannot be corrected without the grace of God in speaking Abrahamic terms, without religion, without tradition. And even in Buddhism, which does not have a theistic view of the divine reality, without the compassion of the Buddha. Why, otherwise, it would be Buddhism without the Buddha. But there is no Buddhism without the Buddha. And certainly in Hinduism, it's emphasized as much as in the Abrahamic religion. So let me use our own Abrahamic terms, our own. Most of the people here come from Abrahamic families. We have, I know, Hindus and Buddhists and so forth. But anyway, let me use this language, which we all understand. Uh, this transformation cannot go, c take place by itself. There has to be what? Christian would call grace, Muslim would call grace, baraka, faith, divine succor, divine help, without which even if we blame ourselves, we will not be able to cure ourselves from the blemishes that we have. That's a very, very difficult thing, very, very difficult thing to do, much more difficult than getting 10 PhDs in physics or another subject from the best universities, much more difficult. And uh, once we attain that, however, once we are able to heal those errors of the soul, the soul itself is transformed alchemically, like base metal into gold, into what is called nafsul mutmainna, that is, the soul that rests in peace, that rests in divine peace. And this is the peace from which emanates compassion. This is the point where Islam and Buddhism also have a lot in common. Uh, you always have these images of the Buddha, which have tremendous peace in them. I mean, tra traditional images, whether it's Japanese or Sri Lankan, from uh, Theravada or Mahayana, or of course, Vajrayana school in Tibet, have the most beautiful images. They always a remarkable element of peace, but combined with compassion. And compassion issues at this level of the soul 
And once one reaches that, then one reaches the highest level, according to Sufism, which is Naftar Radiyatan Mardiyatan, as the Quran says, that is the soul that is both satisfied with God and God is satisfied with it. That is the highest attainment. The word satisfied here, Reda, from which come so many Arabic names like the word Reda, Mardiya, and so on and so on, is a very profound virtue to be able to be satisfied. We are dissatisfied human beings. We cannot be satisfied. We cannot go become satisfied unless we're able to try to go through these steps of perfection to gradually attain the state beyond the limitations of the ego. It is a great mystery of the human state, which all religions have uh, emphasized, is that the human state needs something beyond itself in order to be human. To, de to deny the divine element in human beings is to live be below the human. And uh, Sufism emphasizes that, every religion emphasizes that, and Sufism opens the door within Islam for not only talking about this, but also attaining it. Now, to attain that stage is to realize the truth that the Quran mentions when it says, verily, we created you from a single soul. Nafsun wahd. God says that we created all human beings from a single soul. But that we are not aware of that usually. That is the origin of compassion. Compassion is not simply sentimentality. Uh, tomorrow when I swear I'm going to talk about the relationship between compassion and truth, which we oftentimes negate and deny and neglect to the, uh, at very great cost to humanity. I shall say something about that tomorrow. But let me just say here that compassion is not only sentimentality. It is that. It includes good sentiments. Good sentiments are fine. It's not just feel good by giving a dollar to some poor person in the street. It's much more profound than that. Compassion is to be true to ourselves. True to ourselves, to be our real self. Why? Because once we transcend all the limited levels of the self and attain the highest state of the self, we realize what the Quran said that we're created from a single soul. Uh, that, in fact, myself is the self of all selves. So true charity is helping myself. No, this is of hoarding all the wealth of others. That's to become imprisoned in that ego which I'm, we're trying to escape from. But to realize that to give is also to receive. That's why Christ said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Because in giving, we realize ourselves much more than in receiving. And this is not at all sentiment. It's met pure metaphysics. It's a science. It's based on the reality that, first of all, Ultimately, all of us, in the deepest sense, are one soul. Quran said, nafsun wahd, single soul. Secondly, in helping others, in being charitable towards others, in showing compassion to others, we're being true to the only thing that is really true in us, that is the Supreme Self. The only thing that is really real in us, the only thing that's true in us, is the Supreme Self. Everything else is maya, it's shadow. Is half true, illusion, whatever term you want to use. I don't. It's a pure illusion. Maya is not pure illusion. It's also divine play, as Aranda Kumaraswamy said. But usually it's translated illusion. But anyway, it's not ultimate reality.
The only thing that's ultimately real is the divine self in us. And so this compassion really is to be oneself and to be truly oneself, to be real. The only way we can be real is to be compassionate in, a, in the deepest sense, metaphysical sense of the term. And we have to introduce this intellectual, spiritual element into something which appears to many people to be simple emotions. Even the emotions God has put in our heart because emotions also reflect deeper levels of our being. The fact that good people are charitable is not accidental. It's related to, the, to goodness. Because goodness is what takes us away from the confines of the ego, which uh, orders us to do evil, as we say, amara basu. Now, uh, <clears throat> there are usually several ways of breaking the walls of the ego. God has provided different ways. That's why I have different forms of yoga in Hinduism, different uh, paths and Buddhism and Islam and Christianity. Some religions emphasize one more, some others. I don't want to go into it to compare to religion now. Judaism, for example, had a path of knowledge in the Kabbalah, which is much more accentuated than Christian path, which is mostly the path of love, but the path of love is not absent in Judaism, nor is the path of knowledge in Christianity, and so forth and so on. We could go down the line. Now, uh, just turning to Islam, but these are comments really pertain to other religions as well. There are several ways that uh, we can come overcome the walls of the ego. And the first question, of course, I'm why do we have to overcome walls of the ego? We have to overcome it because it suffocates us, because we suffer from it. The dukkha about which the Buddha speaks has to do precisely with this. If we could be happy in the prison of the ego, all religion would be useless. In fact, nobody would have followed it over the millennium. Anything that had been followed over the millennium must have had some use. Otherwise, people wouldn't follow it. If honey didn't taste sweet, not every civilization would not have honey. One way or another, it's diet. This is the same way. This is a very, very important point. So since we're not happy, we cannot be happy in this prison of the ego, our spirit is made for the infinite. It's made for the empyrean. It's not made for the bottom of a well. Since we're not happy, there's several ways in which this, the, this wall or borders of this limited ego, this limited existence in which most of us live, can be removed. There's not only one. One is, of course, through pure knowledge. Pure knowledge, the path of the Vedanta, of which we have the equivalence in uh, Sufism. That is, sapiental knowledge burns through all of the limitations of existence and leads ultimately to the sun, which alone is. Not everyone, however, is gifted with, it, with this aptitude. Not everyone can follow the path of pure knowledge. There's then the path of love, the path of devotion. And this path of devotion is to go beyond our ego to give ourselves. And love means attachment. Love means attachment, whereas knowledge oftentimes implies detachment from some things. Love always means attachment. The object of love is what we are attached to. There's no such thing as detached love. There's no fire that does not burn. 
Now, this is a very, very important element. Some people would say the most important element of possible spiritual paths or the spiritual life of humanity. And that is the path of love, which is not only the love for God, but also love for all that comes from God, which means all of his creation. And here in is to be found the real meaning of compassion. The word compassion in Latin comes from two words. Com, which means together. Pasos, from Greek, pathos, which means uh, pain. Pain, originally, a pathology. You have a medicine. But also it means elation of the soul. It means movement of the soul. And the deepest sense, compassion, means feeling the pains of others. In the deepest sense, that's the etymological, that's what the word means. But how do we, why do we feel the pains of others? Because the other is none other than ourselves. And he or she who does not feel the pain of others is living not only below the human state, but even below their own possibilities, that they're not fully human. To be human is to be attached to the whole of existence. And I, for one, who was the first person perhaps in the West to speak about the environmental crisis when nobody spoke about it uh, in the 1950s and 60s, and in spiritual re uh, sources, not only the pollution of rivers, like uh, at, at Berithrabad before I wrote, uh, I want to emphasize that compassion, metaphysically, spiritually speaking, should not only be towards human beings. And it should certainly not only be towards our religion or our family or our town or our streets and so forth and so on. Most people have some compassion. Even murderers have compassion perhaps for the sister living down the street and give her some money. But it must be infinite. There must be no boundary to it. And most important of all is compassion towards all creatures. One of the greatest lessons I think that the modern Western learned from Oriental spiritualities, whether it's Hindu, Buddhist, Islamic, anything else, Taoist, is that there's no completely sharp line between the human and the non-human. I don't mean in the Darwinian sense. Darwinism is a kind of caricature of truth. It's truth inverted 100 degrees. Uh, but I'm, I'm talking about the fact that uh, the value of existence is not only of human beings. We cannot sacrifice everything for the sake of human beings. Nor is it only in life. We cannot sacrifice mountains and rivers for the sake of life in general. They're all intertwined together. That's why when we destroy the salinity of the ocean, so-called non-living water of the ocean, we also affect all those living things in it and destroy them. So this compassion is something which is absolutely essential not for the realization of the truth and for keeping the world going. Without compassion, human beings cannot survive. We are now observing this before us. We are observing our own suicide because of lack of compassion in the metaphysical sense. Not that there are no compassionate people around. There are Christians who go and open up hospitals in Africa and they're very compassionate on a human level. They have no interest whatsoever in nature and other creatures because they were never taught that in school. They were never taught that Christianity had anything to say about the sacredness of nature. So compassion in the deepest sense goes back to the metaphysical structure of reality. And in the West itself, 
in classical texts in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, there were certain philosophers and theologians who wrote about uh, sympathia in Latin, sympathy. Sympathy is very, very profound. It was, they said between all creatures there is sympathy. The vertical sympathy between heaven and earth, every creature on the earth and heaven, the celestial prototype, and on the earth horizontally between all creatures. Sympathia means to feel the pain of others. It gets, again, same word, sim and pathos. Root, its root is the same. And so when we talk about silence and uh, compassion, we must understand that this is not a sentimental matter. It is to realize the nature of things. And why silence? Because silence is a symbol of the origin before the cacophony began. And it's more than a symbol. Uh, it's a very important point. Uh, we, could, we could say everything that we say about silence about light, because light and sound are the two fundamental phenomena which usually make use of in all religious texts to describe metaphysical truths. We don't we talk much less about perfume, although occasionally, for example, in Islamic hadith, the, uh, the prophet spoke about perfume. But usually it's light and sound. And why is it that we always talk about holy silence? We don't talk about holy darkness. Because if you talk about the symbolism of light, what corresponds to silence and sound is darkness and light. And that darkness, that darkness is there in metaphysics. Nicholas of Cusa speaks of it in Christian metaphysics. And it's very, very important in both Hinduism and Islam. You have the night of Brahman in Hindu cosmology. I dare not speak about Hinduism with all the great authorities from India here, but I'm a humble student of uh, Hinduism also. I've studied for years at Harvard and reading the works of Kumar Swami and going to India and a very, very humble story. Never write about Hinduism because that's not my field, but I know this much about it that according to Hindu cosmology, the world is reabsorbed into the reality of Brahman. And then you have the night of Brahman in which is just pure darkness. There's nothing. It's a nothing which is a no thing, but it's everything. It's, it's not a nothing. It's a everything from which then the next day of Brahman emanates, the next cosmic cycle and all the mantaras and yugas and so forth and so on. And in Islam, we have the most beautiful image I've seen in any poetry, uh, in Sufi poetry, about the symbols of night, which is called black light. The light, which is, the, is black because of the excess of its manifestation, not because of darkness, because the excess of its glow and uh, there's this divine poem in Golshan Raz, The Secret Rose Garden of Shabastari, my favorite Sufi poet, Lalang Behafiz and Rumi, uh, who says, uh, you think of God in the world. It's Shabir Roshan Miyana Ruza Tariq, the Persian poem, and illuminated night amidst the dark day. The day seems to us to be luminous. It is really dark, but it's also separation of the divine. And the night appears to be dark but it is illuminated because it symbolizes non-manifested silence in terms of light rather than sound. But why do we talk about silence all the time? Because we, except great saints, cannot make light, but we can make sound. That's the reason. That's the reason. Uh, and so silence is also very important from a practical point of view.
from the way of reigning in, in a sense, the whole cosmogonic process of generation and returning it back to the source, to the principle. And that is why there's always an element of silence in spiritual people. Don't forget that according to every religion, we are here not because of silence, but because of sound. According to Hindu metaphysics, the sound om, we're not here, we will not be here. The book of John says in the beginning was the word. It didn't say the beginning was silence. And the word was associated with Christ. In Islam, it says, in the Quran, God said, be, and there was. So we're here not because of silence, we're here because of divine sound. This is very, very important to remember. And so what is spiritual in every spiritual path is this great mystery that sound, this sound, sacred sound, brings us back to sacred silence. Whereas cacophony does not. But we come from uh, silence, but we are in sound. And so it's through sound that we go back to God. And uh, I believe that a lot of Westerners who practice meditation, when it's not combined with an active element, something like japa or dhikr, we have very great difficulty really getting to the source. It's, uh, there's only half of the process. I don't want to uh, give any directive for others. That's not my business. But uh, you look, when you look at the totality of things, you realize that as the Sufis say, we have come into this world through the word, and it's by the word that we shall leave this world. And the word here, of course, means the name of God, uh, the manifestation of God. And you have exactly the same thing in Christian mysticism and Hinduism. In Hinduism, there's so many uh, references to this. And even in Buddhism, where there's not supposed to be a, a divinity in the sense of Ishwara or Brahman or Allah or something like that, Nevertheless, we all know the significance of Nimbutsu, of various forms of ejaculatory prayer, especially in later forms of Buddhism, and Chan and Zen, and uh, 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 Shin, especially in Japan, more than Zen. Zen relies a great deal on silence, but it does have certain forms of ejaculatory prayers. Uh, all of these point to the fact that uh, we, when we talk about silence and compassion, we must understand what the silence is. How do we reach silence? How do we become quiet? And where are we? Uh, why is it that silence leads to compassion? And let me finish. My time is up. Uh, I was supposed to speak 40 minutes, and it's exactly 40 minutes. Uh, I'm an MIT graduate. You know, I have to be very precise in, in, mathem in mathematics. I'm not one of wandering dervishes who speaks for four hours instead of four minutes. <laughs> We are in this world because the primal silence was broken by the sacred silence itself. Otherwise, there would have been no world. But that pri primordial silence, which somehow always remains within the sound of its own creation, had provided for us the means of returning unto it through the divine sound. And one of the concomitants of this is the realization of who we are. And to realize who we are, we must realize that our self is the self of all selves. And this is the metaphysical foundation for all compassion. And so no matter how great a metaphysician one is, how great a thinker, there is no gate to heaven.
without compassion. There is no blessed soul without silence. Thank you.